Okay. Thank you very much. Coming back from lunch. Obviously, every one of you has made a new friend, so you're all exchanging news, stories, histories. Time to end that. You'll get another chance to tell each other all about yourselves. Um, there are always exciting moments when you come back from lunch and you've made new friends. I'm sorry to interrupt that. Uh, just to reintroduce myself, I'm Craig Bremner. I'm half of or a third of this project with, with Helen and Paul. It's my pleasure this afternoon to do the introductions. So the first speaker is Rachel Cooper. Rachel is the Professor of Design Management at the University of Lancaster, where she's the Chair of Lancaster Institute of the Contemporary Arts and also Imagination Lancaster, which makes you very busy, I imagine, which is the Centre for Research into Products, Places and Systems for the Future. She also has a crystal ball for the future part. Oh, right, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. must have. And her research themes or interests cover design management, design policy, new product development, design in the built environment, design against crime, and socially responsible design. She's had many, many important publications and has had many important roles in design in UK and Europe. So, Rachel, over to you. Okay, thank you. Um, well, I'm not going to um, do a presentation on my essay, so if you want to know what I said in my essay, you need to read it. Um, uh, but I'm actually going to do a sort of prelogue to it. And it's basically a ramble through my career and what's been happening to illustrate why I've said what I've said in my essay. I may refer to it occasionally. But um, 40 years ago, I did my undergraduate degree, and these were the books that we were reading. Pioneers of Modern Design, What is a Designer? Education and Practice, Norman Potter. Anybody know that book? I still refer to it. Um, basic Dynamics and the professional practice of design. So they were core books that you took away at the end of that. Um, that's sort of my career since I did my PhD. So I came out of university with a degree in design, graphic design. Um, by 1982, I'd done my PhD. Uh, I think uh, I have claimed that I was the first woman in the UK to get a PhD in practiced sort of based design. And from then on, I've explored lots of different subjects, all of which have been, um, since the design management first one and the new product, I got my first product, new product development research grant from NSF in the States, and then from then on, uh, I don't know how much I've had, but I've had a lot of money from research councils to do research in all of those areas. Um, and those are the books, if we look at those, those are the books we were reading in 1970. Mm -mm. And um, these are the sort of books that are coming out now. So I didn't. Uh, this is this is just a you know publicity stunt for me actually. But no, no, no. I've been since 2000 and 2000 and something two or something like that. I've been wanting to have not books just about graphic design or product design, but books about how design contributes to other things. So um, we've got that series, um, some more coming out, and I, anybody got any ideas for design? I've been looking for somebody to edit a volume or write a volume on design for education for the last five years, and I can't find anybody. I've been looking for somebody to write a book for design and development for a long time. I've sort of identified a few people, but nobody's come forward. So if you've got any ideas for design for books, let me know. Anyway. The last one was Designed for Policy, uh, edited by Christian Bassan. 
And I think in those 40 years, design as a discipline has gone a long way, just if you look at the titles of those books. So why is that change important? There's all sorts of things, and I'm going to rush through because we haven't got much time because we've gone 10 minutes into it. But, you know, we've got a changing urban population. We've got a huge amount of people going into cities. We've got all sorts of challenges. In the UK, by 2062, we'll have 9.3 million poor people. We've got to produce 245,000 homes per year. We're going to have 8 million people over the age of 80 living in cities. We are going to need, in this country, 30% more water, 45% more energy, 50% more food. We have got climate change. We have got the movement of people, aging population, diasporas, conflict. And we have got the movement of everything still going on. So then we have the biggest threat, two big threats. One is the rise of... Um, of all the non-communicable diseases like cardiovascular disease, chronic disease, diabetes, depression, which are caused by our lifestyles. And the other one is resistance of antibiotics. Those are the big risks that governments have tops of their agenda, apart from war and, and, and uh, that sort of thing. But, so why do we need a paradigm shift in design education? So for me, it's who makes design decisions and who influences them. Now, ever since I've been a, a teenager designer early in my career, I have thought design was the best thing since sliced bread. I have thought design makes a difference to the world. And why wasn't it that industry, educator, other educators in other disciplines, politicians, social scientists, scientists knew that design was it? Right? Um, and so we spent a lot of time, and I've gone through all sorts of programs, new product development programs, design management programs, talking about what the value of design is. Even now, I've had a two-year piece of funding to look at the, what is the value of design and innovation. Goodness me, should we not have known that in the last 40 years, and, and, and haven't, hasn't that argument been picked up? Obviously not always. So I did some research on design decision-makers. And there's, a, piece, there's a, a, a paper, a model that I used from a paper by somebody called Woodhead that talks about design influences, design decisions, decision influences, decision shapers, decision takers, and decision approvers. If you add design to that, where are the designers? Well, actually, um, Woodhead did this study in the, in the construction industry. So he put designers in the design shapers. And he put influences as communities and, uh, and other interested parties. But the decision takers are not often designers, and the decision approvers who have the money are not often designers. And I want designers to be at the top. I want designers to be the takers of decision making, not just about design, but about a lot of things. And I want the designers to have the power to approve funding in whatever case we're talking about. So I've been working for the last, well, since, since 2004, I got my first three million pound budget project and I've been working on those sort of issues ever since. So I think design, design schools can teach people to, to design, design tools. So I did a piece of work on designing sustainable cities. How do you do that? And 
giving people all sorts of tools about how to think about designing in a holistic way. Um, I did some work uh, with the Design Council on how you think about crime, so work with criminologists to talk about how you use design to design out crime, and gave them the evidence. So it's not just what do we do in design, but actually what is the knowledge that we have to do, use as designers to, to, um, to make those um, uh, changes. If we come to design evidence, a piece of work I did for, for the Global Agenda for the World Economic Forum was about non-communicable diseases. So I wrote a paper about um, how design influences health and well-being. Not for designers, but for World Economic Forum, for people in other sciences and other disciplines to actually illustrate that design can do bad things as well as good things. And we have to bring design down, thinking about its indirect impact, not just its direct impact on, on re resolving um, health and well-being issues. I worked on something called mental capital and mental well-being, looking at how um, the factors of the environment um, affect our well-being. And then I wrote some papers on how you design a happy, healthy city is based on this. But again, this piece of work was research into 2,000 pieces of evidence about the relationship between the environment and well-being and then how design affects our health and well-being. Again, providing the evidence both to policymakers, scientists, anybody you like, and designers what design can do in, in order to intervene in those areas. Little things like density. I did a piece of work looking at sustainable cities and urban futures. And everybody talked about density, designers, non-designers, but they really didn't understand what density was. So I did a piece of work surveying all sorts of different um, professionals and, and non-professionals, looking at the literature, and developed a book called The Guide to Density in Urban Environments, and developed a taxonomy which had not been produced before, to start to get to people to understand if you design something that has 450,000 houses, what does that implication does it have to other things? So looking at the ramifications of what designers and non-designers do when they make decisions. And then we get into another world. So you can get the evidence, you can give the tools, but then we have this um, uh, domain of engagement, co-design, participatory design, all these sort of terms that everybody's talking about. So then we can actually start designing that process. So at Lancaster, at Imagination Lancaster, we're designing this, the, the processes in which you engage with. This one is something called Beyond the Castle, where we engaged with most of Lancaster uh, residents to look at how they want the castle area to be designed. We've got a book that, that big on the residents. Now this is where I start to, um, we can have big discussions about this. When you co-design, when you ask a lot of people what they want, you get that many ideas. Somebody has to make a decision. So we come back to who is influencing the decision, who is, you can have those influencing, but who shapes them, and who takes them, and, and how do you get the evidence for it. So we also do stuff on futures, and visualizing futures, and working with um, other disciplines to actually work out where the future is going and what we need to do. So we're designing futures. And we're doing 
thought experiments. So this is a thought experiment about a sharing city. So there's lots of work on the sharing economy, but really nobody understands it. So we ran a series of sharing um, workshops with citizens, with different stakeholders, and we start to use um, visualization to feed that back. So it's a, it's a matter of actually design thinking, co-participation, and communication. And now we come into another world that people are talking about, which is design fictions, which is futures. Now, I didn't do this, but uh, a couple of weeks ago, there was a headline in the mail, no more second guessing, concept emotion detector. Could you reveal if a person really finds you attractive on the first date? Male readers actually thought it was real. Um, so this is a colleague of mine, and he actually creates fictitious prototype products to test people's idea about the future. Uh, we're currently doing a project, we, we, along with six other universities, we've got about 10 million pounds to look at the Internet of Things. But actually not creating the Internet of Things, but looking at issues of privacy, trust, adoption, acceptability. Because the Internet of Things is coming, but how will it change people's behaviours, will they adopt it, and so on and so forth. So a lot of this will be through um, design fictions, actually thinking about the world ahead. Now that, that was said this morning about what designers can do. And designers are very good at taking risks and thinking futures. And that's one of the skills we, we actually do provide students with. So I think we ought to be thinking, but design is always thinking about are there alternative ways to solve critical challenges that face us at all scales? and what's the role of the designer. And I think that's something we should always be doing in education, constantly thinking about what we can do and how we can do it better, because that's what we've always been doing. Um, I think what we've got to do is move from what I would call myopic design, um, design that looks today and looks at little things and, um, and does not have any foresight, but actually holistic design, where we're thinking in a wider perspective. And actually, we have been doing that for quite a long time. So I did this, I think this is a visual from a book I wrote in 2003 about how designing things has moved into all sorts of spheres. And that's what we have done in that 40 years, and particularly in the last 20, I'd say. And I did another diagram in that book in 2003, and it was tweeted a couple of weeks ago. Somebody found it and said, oh, this is really resident of, resident of today, you know, sort of, our new designers are active citizens. They're internationalists, they're empathizers, they're intelligent makers, they're knowledge workers, and they're sustainable entrepreneurs. Well, for me, that's uh, about 10 years, 13 years old. We really need to work out what the new designer is. Um, but it's interesting that uh, we have a ladder of maturity here, and um, I'd like to discuss with you all where different parts of the world are on this ladder of maturity, if some places want to stay at one level or, or not, or if it, is it a ladder of maturity in terms of what design education is? Is it just different options? In my um, essay, if you call it that, I actually said, I'll make you a couple of points here. I actually said that, I started with a phrase, that, uh, a friend of mine's written a book, Chris Lewis, of Chris Lewis PR, who talk, he's written a book just recently called, it isn't published yet, called Too Fast to Think. And he interviewed a lot of industry leaders who are actually concerned that they don't get enough time for creative ideas. And I remember when I did my undergraduate degree, 
I actually had a lot of time. I had no modules. I had, very rarely was I ever measured during the year. I didn't have to pay, obviously. Um, and I would just wandered about. In the last year, I definitely wandered about. I picked three projects I wanted to work on with industry, but some of them were socially aware. And I just spent months really deeping, uh, digging deep and thinking. And, and I think British, British education, I, I'm not coming, has lost some of that because it's been modularized, it's been structured, because of all the systems we put in place. So, you know, we do need to give have careers where, where our students have time to think. Because I remember thinking when I went straight into industry, this is the only time that it gave me a reservoir. I had three years where I just experimented, you know, used materials, thought about social policy, but it wasn't called social policy at that time. I had time to think and be creative. And I drew on that for the next five years, basically, to work as a, as a designer. And I think we need, we need to think about how we bring that back in. But in the UK, we've had an explosion of PhDs. You know, when I did mine in 1982, there was nobody else I could get to examine me because there was nobody else who had a PhD in design. Now, well, at, at Lancaster, we have 50 PhDs in design or more. Um, and we have lots and lots of funding for research that's come about. Um, so courses have got to move. In, in design, I think they have to move from places of commodity. We also have a tension, I think, between, um, between professional training and academic. And, um, and so we have a lot of parents wanting their children to come out with a job. Um, now, I, didn't, I knew I wanted to be a designer, but I didn't know what sort of designer I would be or would get to. Now, a lot of students come in and want to have a design job at the end of it. So we have a bit of tension with that ability to explore and, um, and, and, and be something without really focusing on being an industrial designer. So I think we've got a tension there. Um, I have a, an idea for what a, a new design course should be in the university, and I've written it down. I might talk about it in a bit, but we'll come to that. So I think there's an issue here. How does design step up to its game? And what role does design have? I think we've still got to think about that. And if there is a UNHCR, UN Health, why isn't there a World Design Organization? And I don't mean a DRS or a European Academy of Design. I mean an organization that's in Geneva or New York or whatever promoting design to solve a lot of society's problems and, and actually drawing on the design community to do that. Um, I, I just got a, oh, I can't even remember the title of it now. I've just been asked to be on, I would just, this is the end of my career. Oh, well, maybe not today, but sometime <laughs> soon. Um, and, um, yeah. And I just got a letter two weeks ago saying that the Royal Society, in the UK, the Royal Society is the preeminent science body in the UK, had nominated me to be on the International Science Committee for, uh, it's a long title, Urban Something and Wellbeing. And there are, and it's, you know, 144 countries in the world are part of it. It's blah, 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 you know. And I thought, not the pinnacle of my career, but it, I thought if a design academic gets nominated by the science body to be on a preeminent science body in the world, then that's where 
The problem is, I want to look behind me and say, ah, there's this person who can do it, and there's that person who can do it, and we have these students coming through. I can see one person in the audience that I will next send to these bodies, but, and another one, but actually, I want to know, when people ring me up, I want to know who to point to, who can go and talk in a generalist way, but from a design perspective, how we can change the world. So in the last couple of years, I've been on the Academy of Medical Sciences re producing report on um, the, public, the health of the public 2040. Why am I there? Why am I talking about design? Well, I have to ask them. I'm now on something called the National Preventive Prevention Research Initiative. Right? So design, I want to see design influencing all those policy organizations, just like you're trying to do in, in Washington, etc. We need to see that. And not to say there isn't a place for the traditional private design schools producing designers who want to be designers. But if we're in a university, my vision for a university design um, department is a different one. And design is like, should be like an ology and maths. It's a basic knowledge, but then it actually expands out. So um, I think my question was, so what's the education world is on? Well, I've just said it. Uh, that's my idea. But actually, this is what this whole thing's about. So um, that was a quick run through in 20 minutes. Thank you.
and they hate it because it started to measure some of the people who search out there. The more you get measurements, the difficult it is to Maybe you can find some social media, some new digital response thing. Actually, you can use this emotional detector and call it a fictitious detector that will help you tell them where to are and the sort you know, or how they're getting on. But I think it's that trying to balance the immediacy of now and, and the quantification with that time. And,
Right, so, um, do you have an undergraduate program? We do now. I'm against it, actually, but then we've had the university, and Martin did it. What's that in? What's that in? But, you know, we, we need, generally, an undergraduate, a strong undergraduate cohort to pay our salaries and maintain our Porsches, so... Um, <laughs> no, 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 no
should in some places do a good job in terms of um, children thinking about the global challenges of poverty, of sustainability, of climate change. What we need to do is for, the, for, for those primary schools and those secondary schools in the UK to link that to some of the, art, the arts and design. So I think we, that exactly what we're doing there is that's what we need. They, a lot of children and students on that hand are very you think you are and how far we should go along it would be great. 
Can you present his view? Oh, right. Oh, I see. It doesn't matter too Next speaker, closer to home for me, um, Tim Marshall. Tim is the provost of the New School in New York. And I'll explain so he doesn't have to. Parsons is a subset of the New School, um, where Tim was also dean of Parsons uh, prior to becoming the provost of the New School. And provost, if you don't know, is equivalent to vice-chancellor in our terms. And interestingly, he and I worked together many years ago um, and have known each other for a long time now. And part of the attraction for Getting, asking Tim to come here and talk is that there isn't, to my knowledge, uh, ever been uh, or likely to be, I think, a Vice-Chancellor whose primary practice is photography. Um, so I think he sits in a remarkable position having was photography, he says. Yeah. Uh, but uh, been head of a school of design, been a dean of Parsons Design School, now Vice-Chancellor or Provost of a, of a university in New York. Uh, quite a unique perspective from our point of view on what's happening with the design school, the future of the project. So it's a pleasure to welcome you back, Tim. Thanks. And if you don't know the new school, if you got to know it better, it may not be quite as unusual as it sounds, <laughs> as you know, Bettina. So um, the, the paper, oh, I should say, there's been a little pagination problem in the paper. I was a little worried George might get fired because he, part of his essay is in the middle of my essay and I don't know that that would go down very well. <laughs> so apologies, but if you're wondering why there's a page and a half of ECAL references in the middle of my essay, it actually should be attached to yours. Well, I don't know. It might be a bad thing for you, but it's not a bad thing for me, that's for sure. <laughs> so anyway, um, the... Uh, so I just want to read a couple of pieces out of paragraphs out of out of that paper, just to ground what I'm saying, and then I'll go into a presentation. But as you can tell, and it's partly because I'm, you know, the provost of a university, but it's also partly why I became a provost of a university, which is I don't think design education should be thought about purely in terms of design and design education. We have to. I think we should be confident enough to really think about education writ large and the educational project writ large, writ large and design's role in it. And Rachel's already set me up very nicely for this, including the fact that we need a new school. And I'm here to say we have one. It just happens to be old. <laughs> um, so more to that in a minute. But So the claims I'm making here is that, uh, you know, one of the things that's happened in the U.S. is that the claims that we've made about design and its strategic importance uh, has succeeded to a very large degree, particularly in business and government and non-government agencies. Uh, and I'll talk more about that in a moment. But that part of the puzzle, at least in the US, is, not, is, is basically done. People are convinced about design. 
So, but that's now throwing a challenge back to design education because exactly what we mean by design in these contexts is shifting and changing. Uh, and the way designers traditionally understood and educated have to work is shifting quite dramatically as, partly as a consequence of that. So the networks of collaborative relationships across design and non-design areas are an essential feature now of how designers have to work and therefore how they need to be educated. It reminds us that the verb to design indicates a fundamental human capacity that is not defined by the profession of design. This understanding will directly inform the future constitution of design education in the academy as it now presents a two-sided dilemma. On the one hand, there is the future of the professional design education, and on the other hand, I think we can now make the argument, given how influential design is in our daily lives and our politics and what have you, that a well-educated and engaged citizen of any democracy would need to have a pretty rich understanding of how design actually impacts their lives, how it manipulates their lives, how it organizes their lives, and their relationships with things and institutions and each other and so on. So in order to do that, the social political implications of design constitute a question as much for democratic citizenship. And in this context, it becomes a literacy, a capability or a capacity, and a specialism. I think it's all these things. It's not necessarily competing across them. And so those of us invested in, in and responsible for design education need to expose designing to a broader-based social and critical debate. We need to make ourselves open to a critical debate. Uh, it's I think it's a crucial the ongoing transformation of design to be a fully implicated social and material practice. And also suggests, at least to me, then this is a US context, that our industrial era degree structures, where you choose between a liberal arts degree or a studio-based degree or a management and business degree, that this kind of construct, that coming out of high school you have to make a decision to go in one or the other of these uh, directions uh, and then try and figure out how to hybridize them later, is, is as I said, basically redundant. So that's kind of where I'm coming from. And so as I say, predicting the future is, is not a good idea. So the new school, I have to say this because nobody understands it, and I, I have to be a little evangelical, evangelical about making sure people do, is made up of these five schools. Parsons School of Design, most prominently New School for Social Research, which was the founding school, a liberal arts college, a performing arts college, and schools of public engagement, which is basically urban policy, um, various management programs, media studies, creative writing, and so on. And, um, so that's where 135 degree programs at bachelor's and master's and PhD level, PhDs only in the social sciences, and 10,000 students, half of whom are, a little more than half of whom are design students. And this is what's so unusual, is to have this model of a university that is, that is basically there are two major paradigms of, of institution in, in the US. One is the standalone school, the art and design school, the performing arts school, uh, the, and so on, the liberal arts college. They're the major standalone schools, or the comprehensive university, in which is a very large university covering most, most of the bases. You find design in both. Typically, you'd find design as a small part of a big multiversity, very, very hard to influence the direction of the, of the university, and typically within a university that has, that's dominated by engineering and technology. So that's, or it's in a standalone. What's unusual about New School is it's a social research oriented university with a very large school, and it's not a comprehensive university, but it's a very comprehensive design school. So it's an, it's a, there is no other institution like it, so it's very hard to actually generalize about that. Um, but our mission, which we wrote, wrote a couple of years ago, rewrote a couple of years ago, basically foregrounds social research and design and how that plays out across all of our fields and practices. Here we are on Fifth Avenue, rather hulking new building on Fifth Avenue, 
and interiors. That's, so we're basically in Greenwich Village around Fifth Avenue. We have this whole network of buildings down there. So I'll take you back. And these are, the, again, it's very hard to sum up. These are four important dates in our history, which I think are relevant to what we're talking about. 1895, Parsons was formed. A little different to RISD. It was actually much more of a socially orientated uh, school, looking at interiors and fashion and communication, less the manufacturing side. Uh, 1919, the new school for social research is formed as an opposition to the university. They were fleeing the university. John Dewey and Veblen were the founders of it. So very much a project-orientated approach to the social sciences and economics and so on. 1933, the university in exile is set up in the new school where fleeing Jewish uh, academics and intellectuals who couldn't find a place anywhere to go when they were fleeing Europe basically were homed in the new school. There was a group of German social scientists, Hannah Arendt being the most prominent, and then a little later there was a French version, University Libre, which was headed up by Claude Lévi-Strauss, and so they found refuge there. The Germans never went back. The French did go back and founded the now very prestigious social research school in Paris. But what happened then, unusually for universities, we started with PhDs. So they, they brought a PhD program with them. So we started with PhDs and then worked backwards. Uh, and then 1970, Parsons School of Design joins the new school. So it's been around, they've been, they were independent up to then, then joined. Um, and so they're really the kind of four key dates that we have. Okay, so back to the actual question. This is actually a distillation from a very old report, about 10 years old now, uh, looking at the future of universities around the world. So, and I, I continue to like to show it for, one, I think it's fairly obvious that what's going on in the academy, and many people have spoken to why this is happening, the fact that disciplines and professions traditionally constituted are finding more and more difficulty having relevancy and being, having capacity to address the most urgent issues of our day, and so that there's a you know, restructuring of the ways disciplines think of themselves and now have to behave, and that's what you can see. But the other part I think is interesting in this context is on the left-hand side, if a university is constituted that way, as many of them still are, then you may have design in there, you may not. It's not, a really, it's not really relevant. You can't really see any particular relevance of design, traditional design or even the, the newer ways we're talking about it, to be in that kind of university. If you look at the right-hand side, and by the way, this report had nothing to do with design. It had to do with the future of universities. The word design was never mentioned. But on the right-hand side, emphasis on teams, research shaped by interaction between researchers and users, problem and issue-based, transdisciplinary networks, knowledge drawn from diverse sources, broadly based control by users, that's design language. They didn't say that was design language, but that's the kind of design language. So you can suddenly see that there's a whole lot of reason why design should be prominent in the future university if you subscribe to this particular move as being necessary to address, and Rachel's covered this territory very well, the, the actual societal issues that we're dealing with, not just design issues. Okay, another thing that's happening, and there's still context, that is really dramatic uh, in the US. And it's caught, I think, design schools a little bit by surprise. And that is, as I said before, business and government and non-government have really bought the idea. But business, business non-design businesses are swallowing design companies and studios at the rate of knots, at extraordinary pace. So um, virtually there's no, no decent design studio left that hasn't been purchased. Now these are companies who are not purchasing just to be part of a portfolio of companies in a creative industry like Publicis. These are companies that have decided that design is absolutely essential for their strategic future and as a consequence they cannot afford to outsource something that, that's, that is that important, that strategic, so they have to bring it in-house and if they're not buying design companies, they're building it. So, and it's across the whole economic sector. So 
Capital One has bought a prominent design studio. It's a bank. Insurance companies buying design studios. Mayo Clinic has bought a, or building a design clinic, a design studio. Um, uh, IBM is famously building the largest design studio in the U.S. They just put on a thousand designers in the last year. Cognizant, a company I didn't even know about, is a huge back-end company, one of the most profitable com companies in the world, is making a huge play towards design. IBM, General Electric, Google, Facebook, Mayo Clinic, as I said, they're all buying design studios, which is extraordinary. And it's, so we've been out there sort of both either celebrating or wringing our hands about the fact that all of our graduates are going to emerge out of our design schools and land in the gig economy and work in this very provisional way and be part of the makers movement. Meanwhile, that accounts for probably about 5% of what's going on. The really big news is they're all now reporting to the HR departments of big Fortune 500 corporations. It's a completely different world that they're moving into and one that we're still trying to make sense of. Obviously, have to get Apple in there somewhere. This is why one of the reasons why companies are doing it. That's, that's Apple's profits on the blue line and that's Foxconn who make the Apple products profitability on the bottom line. It doesn't pay to manufacture. They're at 1% profit margins and they're at 35%. So that's why a lot of them are doing it. Okay, now I'm going to take a little step sideways because if you're talking about education in the US, and I suspect that we're a bellwether for what's happening, going to happen elsewhere, but we're way ahead of you on this, shamefully. <laughs> um, and that is what's happening to the cost of education and what's happening to student debt. And you, it's become so serious that it's actually on the edge of transforming higher education entirely is this, actually this problem. So it's really, it's, and it's also driving a sort of new class system, which is probably extremely pernicious in terms of creativity and diversity and the kind of things you need in design culture. So the red line is student debt going up from 2005 to 12. That's the rate of increase of student debt that's being held by students across the country, over a trillion dollars now. And the bottom is their earnings, which are basically flatlining. So their debt to earnings is, is going crazy. This is the inflation rate of colleges relative to the inflation rate in the society generally, the consumer price index. Super inflating in the, in the, in the academy. And then maybe most depressing of all, this is who's holding that trillion dollars worth of student debt. Mostly people in the bottom 25% with a net worth of less than $8,000. So this is a massive challenge. And I just kind of put it out there because it's really hard to think education now, I think, without having this in your mind. Okay, so back to design. I've always liked Anne-Marie Willis's, I think it's a very simple construction of what design is now, because I think basically the way it looks to me is that where it's not so much competing this version of design versus that version of design, but rather the design is expanding tremendously. And now design is not, does, designers don't have complete ownership over what design means and how design works. There are many people, business schools and engineering schools and, and digital humanities are now occupying what they think design is about and sort of being very active with it, often without what we would understand to be designers anywhere present. Stanford's D school is the most obvious one. They don't have a design school in Stanford, which is one reason why they could do that, actually. And when you watch what they're doing, there's no design faculty involved. There's often no design students involved. They're purely using design as process. So at that end, you know, we have the objects, the, the, the making of design, the process of design that now everyone's kind of getting very excited about, governments and, and so on that Rachel talked about, which I think together start to produce a sense of the agency that design can have, which is what's really driving, I think, the, the inflation of design across the board. That now designers and designers, however you might want to phrase that, 
are, having, are, are capable of having this impact. But what does that mean for design education when design now is traveling across these three categories, at least in my mind, and expanding across them? Most of our education is still based in the object world, material or immaterial, about, and it's a very important work. I don't see these as competing at all. We need all of it. But as we, where does that design education fit? Do we just leave the process and agency question to others, non-designers? Do we educate our designers to be prominent in, these, in this arena, in which case we need to change our education in some way, shape, or form? Not necessarily at odds with one another, but it does transform it, and so on. So they're the big questions. Obviously, one of the, and this has come up a lot, the imperatives driving this, Rachel again touched on this already, but a lot of the issues that are underpinning environmental and global, globalism, environmental, urban and technological transformations that are going on, they're all interplaying with each other in very complex ways, are driving, I think, this sense that people are reaching toward design potentially as having somewhere in its process the answer to how to deal, and particularly in disciplines and professions that are otherwise playing their own end games, I think, within their own frameworks, because they can't address these questions in isolation from one another. This is what employers are looking for. Again, this was touched on earlier, but when you look at employers, there's kind of a breakdown. Again, going back to what I was saying about liberal arts education, studio business, what they're looking for, this is the top ten list of what they're looking for, doesn't fit neatly in any one of those categories. They're looking for critical thinking and analytical reasoning. That's really the purview of the liberal arts education. Looking for innovation and creativity. They're looking for communication, multimodal communication skills. They're looking for collaboration and teamwork. They're looking for all these various things that don't necessarily fit the traditional education. Now, sorry for the long text on this one. It's worth, it's two slides, but it's worth Mark C. Taylor. Very, I don't know if anyone knows Mark C. Taylor, but he's rather controversial in the US, partly because he's advocating for the end of tenure and the end of retirement. He's the head of religious studies at uh, Columbia, a very traditional department and a very traditional university, and he's about 75 years old, and he's coming up with some fairly radical solutions, which I don't subscribe to them all, but I think what he's getting at here, which is the division of labor model of separate departments, is obsolete. Again, this kind of idea that the way in which we've structured this 19th century structure of education, no matter what students are trying to learn, is re pretty much redundant. And so he's advocating for the abolishment of these departments, and rather than having disciplines framing things, having these, these words at the bottom, space, time, media, money, life, water, uh, issues starting to drive the way educational is, education is framed, and also having sunset clauses, courses, sunset clauses on programmatic direction so that we don't lapse back into the self-replication, self-repetition problem that higher education is in. So I know there's a school in, I think, Holland that's got these temporary master's degrees, which I thought was brilliant. Like they mount them for three years and then turn them down again, which I think very much gets at that. Okay, so this is bringing it all back home. What, did, what to do, what did we do? I just want to give you a few case studies of how we've struggled with these questions, with this big, old, proud design school doing its thing, producing fantastic fashion designers and interior designers and product designers and, and so on, and we're going to continue to do that. We do it, they're great, we're proud of them, um, and it's, a, it's our bread and butter, no question, as well as everything else that I mentioned. So we started doing two things. One was to completely restructure all the curriculum. Um, when I was Dean of Parsons, we completely rebuilt the undergraduate curriculum uh, in order to embed it in the university so it was no longer apologetically an adjunct to the institution but was really part of it and starting to drive the agenda of the institution forward. Uh, so we opened it up so students could actually participate in authoring their own degrees. And then 
taking that newfound capacity the institution then had and building hybrid studies on the back of that. So design and, and liberal arts and performing arts students now have access to a whole range of different minors and programs across the university. They all can take these in different ways and are taking them. So a product designer who's interested in, uh, and, in looking at sustainability or whatever, we have some top economists working on sustainability economics or on supply chain, so they can go study with them. They never could do that before. A fashion designer that wants to understand anthropology and ethnography, uh, ritual and what have you, can do that. They never could do that in the past and so on. Sociologists working with data visualization and, and so on and so forth. So embedding that in their education so they're getting that from day one and actually inculcating them into that way of working. So they're not having to abandon their practice of design but they're having to recontextualize it within, with others that are not designers. I think the problem of designers always working with designers is a really major one. Then starting to construct new majors around... Interestingly, when we put journalism and design together, where the design piece is bringing the data visualization, the, the videography, social media aspects to journalism, it immediately became the most popular liberal arts major in the university. This is in the liberal arts, not in, in design. Same with data analytics. That's a liberal arts program, and design anthropology is coming from the New School for Social Research. So slowly, other parts of the university are reorientating their own practices toward design in different ways, as the design school itself is also changing. We're playing around with this... Um, uh, new first year where we get rid of all the courses basically and all the, all the semesters and start running. Again, this would be exposing students to all the faculty from across the university from the social sciences to the musicians to the designers, the artists so they'd get to understand body, space and time a fairly traditional construct but understanding it through how does an anthropologist think about the body? How does a philosopher think about time? How does a dancer think about space? How does and so on and so forth. Uh, and then this is now pushing a little even further into this territory. And again, this is not at the expense of anything else. It's additional to what we're doing. I asked a group of faculty to go away and actually, because, because I basically do believe that this BA, BFA, BBA construct is really problematic. Because what happens is when anyone gets together and thinks about the future of education, they have that as their starting point. No matter how much they want to push it or they want to innovate it, they start from the idea this is a liberal arts degree or this is a studio degree. And then they start innovating. So what I wanted these folks to do was to say, I just want the B, just the bachelor's. Forget what comes after it. I don't want you to be stuck inside that ideology that comes with that, liberal arts or studio or what have you. I want you just to think about our students are changing. They're coming with very different backgrounds and different expectations and different hopes which don't map onto our institution very well. What the world needs is changing. And then we have this set capacity within this university. Just design around that just designed with these students coming in, the world and where it's headed and what's needed and what we have to offer in that construct and just start from there. So they dreamed up, they took on the debt load, which we've talked about, and losing touch with job markets and future careers and inflexible curriculums and what have you. That was in the country club critique, which in America means, you know, you get a climbing wall. They're putting all the money into climbing walls and swimming pools, not into the educational project. And they started to work on a program, and which I thought was worth sharing. Some, this is still in formation. So they're looking at theme-based curriculum, things that transcend the typical divides, student governance being a very important part of the way the degree works, and so on. And in this case, what I, was, what I think, design has to sort of stop trying to, well, put it another way. I think that we need to maybe be a little humble and say that all of these things are actually needed 
to address the seriousness of the issues that we're confronting. Design has an important role to play, but doesn't work in isolation. Science has a very important role to play, but doesn't work in isolation. Liberal arts has a very important role to play, but can't work in isolation. So let's remix the education at the undergraduate level such that there's no hierarchy in this. They're actually learning across these kinds of different learning experiences in a non-hierarchical way. There's not the liberal arts or the studio arts that are being privileged in the framing of this. It's simply an education drawing on all the things that we think you need that we have uh, to go forward. So seminars, integrative studios, uh, design science labs and so on being the construct across four semesters. The other thing they've tackled is to have a two-year version. You can exit in two years with a degree, you can exit in four years with a degree, and you can exit five years with a master's. Also going back to many people are accruing a lot of debt and are graduating into, into um, jobs that really don't require four years of education. And others need six years or ten years of education. We need to much more differentiate where students are coming in and coming out in order that they can better uh, do the things that they're looking to do with, with as least time and debt as possible. The bid is a... Is a that's, that's very local language. I forgot what it stands in there for now. But it's basically the, the kind of community... Um, organizing board. So they'd be working with communities and they're typically the stores, the retailers, the, the, the dog walk people and all that. Um, and then again, in a non-hierarchical way, just coming at the curriculum, looking at welding, looking at coding, looking at uh, sustainability, looking at micro and macroeconomics, looking at history, uh, visuality and culture. And so again, trying to get rid of the hierarchy and re reconfigure this. And then, according to the student governance of this particular enterprise, they would sort of select which kind of topics they wanted to address. In this case, it's water, energy, and trade. They don't have to do that. Um, but they would select their thematics and basically bring that to bear. Now, I imagine many of the students may go on to graduate education out of this kind of background and then either into design or into policy or into architecture or into international affairs or what have you. Okay, that's the bachelor's master's. Uh, again, we don't know what's going on. <laughs> we can't predict the future. So what about that then? So we, we're coming at that in a slightly different way. We're looking to... Uh, sorry about this is a diagram I picked up from somewhere else. You don't need to absorb it all. It's the, the four things on the green line is the most important. We're setting up a network of transdisciplinary labs. So we, we started a master's in transdisciplinary design about four years ago. Students are, the graduates are incredibly sought after and getting very high paid jobs in government, non-government and professional or setting up their own studios. But we, and the guy who runs a Jay Mahant, uh, we were talking and sort of agreed that it has a, there's an illogic about running transdisciplinary in one area. So we uh, unpacked it and we, we got some research assistants to map all the CVs of the faculty from across the university and try to find out we're not, we don't care whether they're an economist or a musician or a policy person or a designer. What are they actually working on? What are the things they're actually working on from that disciplinary frame? And we distilled it down that most of the faculty were clustering around emergent economies, urban ecosystems, learning and teaching, and transformative media tactics. So we decided to make those the four anchors of a set of transdisciplinary labs that students from all of our master's degrees from across the whole university would join in this kind of logic. So we'd have the labs typically sponsored. We've run two of these so far. They've been super successful, so we're looking to expand it. And students would be drawn from across the university according to the, to the labs. And so they get a professional experience uh, in that space uh, doing that. So, um, yeah, so that's where we're up to. I'm not even going to bother talking about PhDs because we're so far behind 
what's happening in the UK and Australia and elsewhere for reasons we could talk about if you're interested, but um, they're basically non-existent, <laughs> so there's not much. We are actually working on one, a multimodal PhD, but we're so far behind it's not really worth sharing, I don't think. Um, so that's, that's basically my spiel. Um, there's one little piece I was going to read out at the end just to make the point, which was... Uh, Ideally, then, design education would enable both the form-making expertise and the capacity to move across and between knowledge bases, set, skill sets, domains, systems, or institutions of authority and stakeholder interests, such that the clumsy and necessarily compromised movement towards a better sense of a better way to be can be given the best chance to take hold or to stabilize as a given practice. So, thank you very much. Oh, I've got to sit down now. Do Not successful. Do you think you can take the risk in developing forms like that because, um, A, you're a well-known school and you can get international students as well as local students? And, I mean, I think it's really good that a school does that, that can take the risk and they can bring the students in, whereas other schools may be thinking, Nobody knows us, and if they don't know us, we're not in a room, they're in a lab, they're around to let them, we can't take risks. So we need schools that are leading to take some of these risks and, and move the curriculum forward because then that gives the, the, the argument for the schools to do it when you can see you've got the, the, the student girls coming in and paying for the pleasure. Right. No, I think that's a really good question. I think, yeah, definitely that's a part of it. You could also flip it. If you're a new school and you wanted to get yourself some attention in the world, then you actually might follow a similar path, right? Because you'd actually break through the noise. Whereas if you're a new school, I mean, I mean a small new school, a lowercase new school, <laughs> um, you would, that would be a way you could, if you just set up and said we're going to do product design, fashion design, interior design, it would be awfully difficult to get any attention in that world. So it may be for a new school, without all the baggage that you're dragging from 100 years of history. But, and so on the one hand, it's the opposite. It's very hard to change a design school that thinks it's the best in the world, whether it is or not, but sort of has that mindset. <laughs> it's really tough, because like, and that's certainly what I walked into. It was like, particularly coming from Australia, you can imagine. Um, so <laughs> who are you? you know, it's like, we're like top of, the, top of the peak. Why are we changing anything? And it's like, well, the world's changing, so maybe that's relevant. Um, so there's that side of it, but, but you're also completely right that once you break through on that point, then there's no question that it gives a certain degree of safety to a student to know that they're going to get the brand kind of uh, piece of, whether it's a RISD or a Parsons or you know, RCA or anything like that, um, that that does help you. And it certainly helps New York City and, and that help recruit international students. So I was saying to Craig, uh, before, on the one hand, it's kind of a drag to have ex to have an education that's so expensive, like it is really problematic. The one thing it does give you is an immense amount of freedom. If I can find 20 students, this is how it was when we launched Transistory Design, which was the first of its type in the country. If you can find 20 people or 15 people anywhere on the planet that were prepared to do it, you can do it. There's not, no government to tell you you can't. There's a regulatory bodies, but they're you know, they're half asleep. They don't know what's going on. So they've never heard of transistory. So you can get that through pretty easily. And yeah, and away you go. So that part is super freedom. The, the downside is people are paying a lot of money. So that's the sort of pro and con I see there. But yeah, it sort of works in both ways. 
there was a question. I noticed architecture, I think it was on the, the previous slide. Did you have an architecture program? I asked the question because clearly, I don't know how many architects here, but that's the one design discipline you cannot mess with. <laughs> right. It's a professional, you know, you've got exams, blah, blah. So I just wondered if, if, if you have an architecture program, do, do you? Yes. You have, how yes. Is, I don't know what the architectural body is in the USA, but are they letting you mess with their professional no. Yeah, it's true. Well, we're not entirely getting away with it, but um, so a lot of what I'm saying here is actually extending and growing off of the base that we already have. Some of it is changing. The, the fundamental change for an undergraduate student in particular, and, and a master's student in this context, it would be that the student is off the leash. Right, they can now move, because the, the degrees were restructured such that every student could do their studio major and then they have their liberal arts quotient they have to do and rather than doing their liberal arts only in surveys of world art history and you know, fashion design history, and which was a typical kind of liberal arts that was attached to the design school, they are now able to do psychology or philosophy or policy or economics uh, instead of the, the typical Thing. So that's so it was taking so one piece was taking that space that was already there and sort of reconfiguring it and opening that up, letting the students run around. The the, the architecture program is at the master's, the accredited architecture program is at the master's level, and so they are part of this and they have the space they can do this. This is not the whole degree program. This is a studio that would go for two years within their program, but they have the sort of elective space where they to do it. But your point is right. It's the hardest one. It's the one that they're the ones that least like it. They, they will import people into architecture in interesting ways, but they won't allow their students out. So they've brought in some great philosophers of, of light to talk about light and philosophy and other people, that, but they bring them in, only in, never out. <laughs> Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, we're wrestling with that. We're looking at gateway courses from across the whole area. So students, design students get an introduction to the social sciences. You know, they don't necessarily know what the difference between sociology and anthropology is. Non-design students sort of getting introductions to design, design process, what have you. But I think, and I'm unpopular with this view, so um, I think we overthink that one, to be, to be honest. We, we used to have a special program for students who were coming in who had great academic scores and lousy portfolios. And we slowly got rid of it because it wasn't necessary. By year two, you couldn't pick the difference. These are ones who are specialised in design, so it's not exactly what you're talking about. But nevertheless, you know, there is a capacity to kind of take these things on. Um, on the bigger worry has been on the other side. The liberal arts party, the social sciences and liberal arts have been totally freaked out at the idea that design students are going to flood into their academic courses and completely ruin them. Not without cause, by the way. I, mean, I think there is, partly it's a numbers game. There's 5,000 design students and 1,000 liberal arts students, so you don't literally want them swamping their classes. But same thing happened. You know, basically it's like, wow. Two things, two observations are interesting actually from the liberal arts side when they were bringing design students in. One was this kind of slightly incredulous, wow, they're really smart. Um, and they can actually write. <laughs> and 
and uh, and the second one, and so the philosophy faculty love Parsons students. They love them, and they also know how to finish work. They work really hard, and they know how to finish a project. So people in the policy and planning area are like, this is fantastic. Our students in international affairs, a guy just two days ago said to me, we love having the design students in international affairs. Our guys are great. It was the point, point you were making. But the design students know how to finish the damn thing. <laughs> and it's important. You know, it's really important. So they're actually bringing, as long as you don't try and force fit everyone to become the other, you simply allow them to be and learn from each other so that the designer now has some literacy about what a planner does and what a social scientist does and, what a, you know, and, you, and vice versa. You allow the people outside of design to just develop a, a kind of understanding how design works and how to work with designers and you don't try and over-engineer that and allow that to work so people can both be influenced and learn from each other but not have to become the other. I think that's really the heart of it. Um, and at a very practical level, at the upper levels of majors, we don't have that kind of mixing going on. It's, it tends to be in the minors and other courses. So we do, you know, it's, and it's kind of self-selecting. Nobody from the liberal arts is going to go into the fourth year of fashion. They're going to just die. So, <laughs> quite literally. <laughs> so. Yeah, the undergrad, we're just trying to get a capacity going that people are kind of understanding of the broader world in which their own profession plays out and their practice is playing out and have a, an understanding. And then at the graduate level, you're right, you can do far more like this. This is very specific. You know, there's a thing about low-cost housing in New York City and as designers working with planners, working with you know, social science sociologists and they're producing a project for the city government. And it's that kind of thing. It's much more tailored. The undergraduate, there's a bit of that, but it's much, much less. It's much more experiential. Great. Oh, nice question there. I have a quick question, and I wondered if you could say a bit more about the profile of the external partners that you collaborate with, yeah. um, and if they're mostly from industry, or if you also encourage students to work with other educational outlets. So if it's oh, about the education of design through the higher education solution, right. but what about museums, collections, and other... Uh, right. It's early days, so we haven't done much of this. I mean, but, we, but your second point, we've done a bit with education, K through 12 in particular. The students have worked with the whole design thinking thing has definitely penetrated the K through 12 world in a dramatic way. And so there, there are a lot more schools now looking for support, and so the master's students do some work in that area. Um, we work with the city government on it, sort of more instrumental education policy issues to some degree. Museums, we have an actual program with the Cooper Hewitt that we've run for many years in, in sort of design history and curatorship, but it's not, it hasn't made its way into a project like this. It's simply a degree that's situated with them. So, but that, that would be a really interesting idea, the idea of an exhibition or something being the, being the product would be great. But most of the part, we have zillions of partners beyond this particular model, as many design schools do, but we're trying to actually reduce them and make them longer lasting and deeper. Um, we don't have quite the same research structures you do here. Research is not incentivized in our system at all, which is one of the reasons why there's no PhDs. Uh, we can go get grants and what have you, but there's no other incentive structure or, or regulatory structure at all for research. So everything you do in the research area has to be out of your own pocket and your own will and your own motivation, your own reputational ambitions, not out of any, any other kind of structure. So, so that's not what's driving it. Um, yeah, this is more about the reputation of the institution and, and its reach. Yeah, exactly. But, yeah. You know, what is the timeline you want to run this for? That's a super good question. Yeah. 
So we had one as well, a degree in environmental design. Everybody kind of gets very nostalgic for it from the late 60s through the 70s, and we had amazing graduates out of it. For some reason, it just disappeared. I actually don't know what, exactly what happened, but Parsons also killed it off. <laughs> so, so you're right, things go through cycles. I mean, one of the things, I guess, what I try and pay attention to when you're sort of thinking about how to literally design these kinds of infrastructures of education, if you like, is to make them flexible and adaptable. One of the nightmares of putting in the undergraduate is we had 15 completely idiosyncratic verticals across every area of design, from design management, and design, all of them. And so you literally had to unpack the whole thing. It took 10 years to the first graduate. You had to unpack the whole thing, rebuild the whole curriculum, redo the schedules, redo every piece of the institution just to get them to line up with one another such that a student could go even from graphic design to illustration, much less fashion to anthropology. They couldn't. It was gridlocked. It was like this one had seven courses and they were worth ridiculous credits and this one had five. And so by putting things into some sort, I don't want to be overly sort of deterministic about it, but just put it onto a more flexible system, means you can continue. Those minors could go away, but the structure might facilitate you trying out in a, in a less hazardous way Maybe we want to just start to get good at doing X, and so we can start it as a, as a project, and we can move it into a minor, and we can sort of see it get our feet wet and sort of build up capacity, build up expertise, and if we think it really is work, we can then launch a degree. Otherwise, it was always like, cross your fingers, launch a degree, because there's no other, no other options. So, so I don't know in terms of how long it's taken so long to get here. I can't imagine, <laughs> can't imagine it's sunset at the moment. That's kind of, I feel like it's, but it's a good question. Exactly. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, so I think flexibility. So it's continued to change. I hope, I hope the level, I hope it's longer before the actual infrastructure has to be so dramatically changed just to facilitate a new way of doing something. That's really the point. Now it's time to go to the bar. <laughs> um, during this period, I mean, for a bunch of different reasons, this was a very tumultuous period for, the, for my university. Um, presidents were voted out and no confidence and students were occupying buildings, not because of this, <laughs> um, protesting or what have you. So there was a lot of tumult going on across the institution, uh, which has now all settled down, thankfully. Um, but the and faculty buy-in just because it looks like the new school and looks very the, if you scratch the surface and go into each any one of those areas they were operating very traditionally our conservatorium was never played anything beyond the 19th century and we're called the new school and now it's doing it's completely 21st century and completely launching a, a it's it's gone it's basically jumped over the 20th century it's been fascinating to watch in two years and the guy who did that he was he had guts <laughs> Because, yeah, no, the faculty buy-in is not always there. So with the Parsons piece of it, um, when we were, that was a pretty major rethink. I had the luxury, to be honest, that we had a lot. It was not a good thing. It was done for economic reasons, but there happened to be armies of part-time faculty and not many full-timers. And at that point, the part-time faculty hadn't been unionized. They are now part of the United Automobile Workers, go figure. So they're part of the UAW with Detroit. Um, so that makes negotiating interesting. Um, but... So there's there so but basically the process of getting buy-in for me was purely relational. It was like and I had, I actually think I had a real luxury. I started at a very 
at a lower level within the academic office of the new school, within Parsons. Then I became the academic dean, then I became the dean and the provost. So I was able to kind of grow up. If I'd come straight in and done this, I think I would have set off a firestorm. But I was able to build people trust when I was not really a threatening character and I was able to move up a little bit more and sort of get them more real and then, oh shoot, you know. <laughs> oh my God, how did that happen? He's dean with all these ideas which we thought were interesting when he didn't really have the capacity to do anything about them. But, <laughs> but all of a sudden, bingo, sorry. <laughs> I already meant it. <laughs> um, so that was... I mean, it's funny, but it's actually real. That was, and a lot of it was just every time there was a flare-up, I would just go and sit and talk to people. It was as simple as that. I'd just sit there and I'd talk to two people or 20 people or 200 people all the time. All, and I presented the, the sort of plan, if you like, for the future, I don't know, 30, 40 times to all stakeholders all over and over again. And kept refining it with input. They would give input and I'd refine it and go back. And go. So it was, I think, engagement and taking people seriously. They had lots of great critiques. This didn't come out of my head, you know, fresh, you know, newly formed. This was part of a whole, you know, collaborative. And a lot of the collaborative is critique, you know, harsh critique. And so taking some of that on while keeping your eye on where you're going, all that, but a lot of, a lot of, a lot of relational work. Yeah. Otherwise, it would not have worked. Because the faculty have absolutely the capacity to say, uh-uh, it's not happening. As you know. <laughs> okay. Thanks. Thank yeah, you. great. Thanks. So that's just a fantastic way to um, segue into our next tea break. Thinking about conversation, collaboration, sharing ideas, relational work. Um, we have tried with these summits to give enough time for us all to talk to each other and share ideas, make new contacts. So um, with apologies from the last speaker of the day, who I'm afraid has been um, uh, a pothole at Gatwick, has got the better of uh, flights here from Italy. So what we're going to do is break now for half an hour. So that's a, a nice long tea break for you to have those conversations. But we would ask as well, could everybody not only mark where you position yourself on Rachel's uh, line here, but also perhaps write up a question or a provocation, uh, a thought, an idea, which will then inform uh, the final discussion of the day, which will be you know, 15, 20 minutes, depends on how much more, how many more ideas we have to share. Um, but let's hopefully not have too much of a postprandial dip um, over our lunch. People were having wine and beer, which was quite exciting on a Monday <laughs> lunchtime. Um, but let's keep the ideas flowing. <laughs> not me. Um, yeah, and please have a, have a nice cup of tea and coffee, keep chatting, write up some ideas here, and then we'll come back and reconvene for a final sort of discussion. Okay? Thank you.